right. Send your uh, well wishes to Mark at gods at digigods.com. He is uh, recovering, should have his voice back soon. Really took uh, took a tough one there. So, Tim, thanks again for sitting in. Uh, anytime, anytime, when Mark, particularly when Mark is actually <laughs> sick and not just yeah. you know, so roaming we, around. He usually, he'd, he'd say he was sick and he'd be at a Mets game. You know, last week we, we neglected to uh, pay tribute to uh, Gene Wilder. Who has uh, who, who left us uh, a little over a week ago? Mm. And uh, I was going to ask you um, if you're going to recommend a Gene Wilder movie or movies, what are your favorites? Well, look, I deeply appreciate and love all those early, you know, the producers and all that. So, so all yeah. of that, Young Frankenstein, I get it that you know when people, yeah. when people talk about it, all of it, love it all, right? But growing up in the community where I grew up, when I was growing up as a young black man in St. Louis, Gene Wilder films did immediately come to mind for me. Include Gene Wilder running around doing perfectly ludicrous things <laughs> with Richard Pryor. Stir crazy. Uh, uh, Silver Streak. Silver Streak. I just can't. Now, Gene and Richard did a late movie, Hear No Evil, See No Evil, late in Richard's career yeah. when, when Richard was ill and he needed some money and to get his, pay his sag dues. Yeah. And Gene, saint that he was arranged that entire situation to do that movie. And, G- and, and, and Richard really wasn't up to it. You know, it's not a movie that I recommend people go yeah. see. Frankly, it's a little bit of a hard movie to watch because Richard was not up to it, right? Yeah. And Gene carries him in that movie, got him paid so he could pay a sack insurance. This is the whole story. This is, the, this is the kind of good guy that Gene Wilder was, right? You know, I mean, because you know, this is late in Gene's career, too. Yeah. He, he didn't have a whole, whole lot of movies left in him. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, he went out there with his boy. And he made a movie, this mediocre movie, so that Richard could pay his SAG insurance, uh, so that he could get his insurance. So, but anyway, yeah, the films with Richard Stir Crazy in particular, uh, Stir Crazy still plays today. It is hysterically it's funny. It's so funny. And, and this is the thing that, that, that happens in those Gene uh, Wilder, Richard Pryor movies. The issue of race lives inside those movies. Yeah. Those two guys knew how to live in that issue and to simply make it funny. They understood the lunacies of it. They understood where the humor came from in it, and they live in it. And it's just – you couldn't find two more human beings yeah. more different in terms of their origins than Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Yet they were buddies on screen and off and in those movies, and you believed every second of it. All right, that's my and it, rant. And it even starts with uh, Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that's sure. Cleveland. Yeah. Cleveland. And Richard Pryor wrote on Blazing yes. Saddles, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, obviously Willy Wonka is the, the, the part that everybody uh, really likes to sort of focus on. But, um, you know, for me, uh, it's the, the producers is still, I think, his funniest part. I think he's just so beyond funny in the producers. Yeah. Um, what he did was just absolutely amazing. And I love all the stuff he did as a director, too. I you know I I I, th- I don't think he gets enough credit for the movies he did as a director. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit for World's Greatest Lover. Yeah, which I think is incredibly funny. I just um, born Jerome Silberman, by the way. Yes, yes, like, yes. like all of just like uh, Melvin Kaminsky. Did you know he was a fencing champion? I did not. I did not learn that until you know this week is when I learned that you know yeah. on, on his desk. So I, and I went and looked it up. He and, and for real too. It wasn't one of those sort of like. Um, Little little things that actors will put in their resume, you yeah. know, because they fenced once. Yep. No, people hired him to teach their children how to fence, and then their children went on to be fencing champions, Olympic fencing champions. That's how good he was, mm. which is weird. We just had the Olympics out, so you know, I was thinking about fencing. Blows me away. Well, you know, uh, interesting little bit of trivia. When he made the Frisco Kid, by the way, 
he originally wanted John Wayne in the really? Frisco Kid. Uh, John Wayne, for whatever reason... I'm, I'm trying to get my mind around it. I know, dropped out, and uh, John Wayne was then replaced by a very young Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I'm trying to get my mind around it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think John would have gotten many of those jokes. It's, uh, it's too, And Sherlock, you know, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Smarter Brother. Oh, also yeah. Also really, really yeah, classic. So, yeah. you know, we got a lot of great uh, PBS documentaries uh, and some uh, dramatic stuff as well that I'm going to just uh, roll through real quickly here uh, that you should definitely pay attention to. Churchill's Secret, starring Michael Gambon from uh, Masterpiece, is just absolutely wonderful. Um, it's wonderful not just because of Michael Gambon, who is an amazing Churchill. I'm kind of yeah. amazed that Michael Gambon hasn't played Churchill yet because he's maybe the most perfect actor to do it. Um, but this also stars uh, Ramona Garay, who I just think is is just delightful, a wonderful up-and-coming actress. You've seen her in a lot of television and a few movies. And uh, the priceless Lindsay Duncan, who is, uh, you know, all the British actresses that are great in England, they sort of start to get international attention when they turn 60. Yeah. You notice that? It happened, <laughs> it happened to Judy Dench, and it uh, happened to Helen Mirren. That's when they start paying attention again. Um, anyway, this, is, uh, this all takes place during the summer of 1953, and uh, it's when he, is, he has become prime minister for the second time and has a stroke. And uh, this is directed by Charles Sturridge, who did, of course, Brideshead Revisited and a lot of other really f- great, outstanding films. Uh, it's really, really good. It is definitely worth checking out. I'm surprised it's not on, on Blu-ray, to be honest. Uh, on the documentary front, 9-11, Inside the Pentagon, uh, is, uh, is, is not a front line, but it really kind of should be, to be honest. Uh, this uh, looks entirely at the Pentagon uh, aspect of 9-11, which is often overlooked uh, in favor of the towers and uh, you know the the the, the, the United uh, uh, which one was it the oh the, uh, the, the 93, 90, 93 that 93. crashed in the outside yeah, yeah. so this uh, this goes into the Pentagon end of it and uh, it's very interesting should be should have been a front line is, I don't know. this is not a conspiracy film no okay. not in the least uh, from Nova bombing Hitler's super gun. Also, really, really interesting. Uh, a lot of people not don't realize that uh, Hitler, you know, and his he had flying saucers and all kinds of crazy, wacky yeah. super weapons. That it wasn't were ne- wasn't just the Ark of the Covenant. No. It, this, they, they were planning on all kinds of crazy stuff, and uh, they uh, they had they wanted to really blitz London with a super gun, just uh, that would just unleash three hundred shells. Every hour onto London, uh, it was it, it was just going to be a nightmare, and uh, this was going to be a real thing. And uh, that carried over that crazy super gun idea of his, specifically that idea, yep. carried over to Saddam Hussein in yes, the early eighties. It did. He was you know, it that's was, right. It was a through line from that event. That's the whole right. thing. People when forgot he was, about when he was that. hitting Iran with yeah. those those giant artillery shells, and yeah. he was building this giant long super gun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is also really interesting. This is from BBC Earth, by way of PBS. Uh, Coco, the gorilla who talks. Uh, this is the, all goes back to 1971, and uh, Penny Patterson, when she started teaching Coco sign language. And a lot has been written and filmed about Coco. It's all very, very interesting. And this is a... Um, uh, this really, you know, revisits all of that in a in a very interesting way and kind of puts it in its historical context. Very, very interesting. Uh, being able to, you know, there's some people I'd like to teach sign language to, to be honest. <laughs> uh, also from uh, BBC by way of Nova, by way of PBS, is Vikings Unearthed. 
which gets into uh, the archaeology of, uh, of Viking sites that have sort of really been uh, excavated largely since the 1960s and what they've taught us about Viking culture and heritage and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Really, really, really very interesting. It's uh, all, all changed dramatically since the 1960s. Uh, Shakespeare's tomb which is the uh, the first time that anybody's actually gone to to really do a, a DNA analysis yeah. of, uh, of his tomb. There had been a notion that that wasn't him in there. Yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff, uh, and you know they they do all the computer scans and all that kind of stuff, and uh, so they're trying to sort of uh, separate fact from fiction and figure out what what's legend and what isn't legend, and uh, it's interesting. It's a little it's a little less interesting than it really you would imagine it would be. It's not yeah. like they it's not like they're going to find by DNA they're going to get he didn't really write Romeo. Yeah, Juliet. that whole that whole thing yeah. about who wrote whatever yeah. Christopher. Yeah, yeah no. Uh, from Nature, Jungle Animal Hospital, uh, which is exactly what it is. It's about a jungle animal hospital, which is delightful. <laughs> it's a lot of cute animals and people doing wonderful things for animals, and it's not going to change the world, but it's it's really sweet and uh, it, re- it restores your faith in humanity because we do wonderful things for animals who need to have things done for them. Uh, from the Secrets of the Dead series, Teotihuacan's Lost Kings. Uh, there's so much stuff with the Mesoamerica that is just still so mysterious. And this is about a bunch of uh, scientists and archaeologists who go to the tombs that are underneath um, the ruins of Teotihuacan in Mexico and uh, try to do a little bit what they do in the Viking thing and, and sort of put together the uh, figure out you know what, w- what the ruins were used for and what these people did and see if they could find archaeological and DNA evidence that would help piece together that, mm. uh, that civilization. It's very interesting. Uh, here's a killer front line, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, it, it's life-affirming and heartbreaking at the same time. Children of Syria. Uh, this is about a single family of refugees, and uh, it sort of uses them as a uh, microcosm of the migration and uh, refugee crisis, which has just only gotten worse over time. And uh, specifically looking at, the, at these four children over the course of, uh, mm. of three years, this has been, they, yeah. they've made this. And... Uh, it is. Uh, it, it's just. It's just gut wrenching because there's now no. There's just no end in sight for the suffering of these people. But um, you. You do get a sense of hope that the these kids are going to be okay, and uh, maybe some others in in their wake will be as well. But it's. Uh, they, they took their time to not rush this, and it. It really is quite good. Uh, the secret history of ISIS is another front line. Uh, that pieces together, you know, this is the, the who created ISIS and who didn't has become no. kind of a political football this season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I have an issue with the use of, of the, the word, word ISIS, ISIS as, with as respect to the... That's to part the, of it, too. I have, I have a real problem with that. That's Our president too. calls them Daesh and ISIL, which makes more sense to me. More, more, but, but irrespective of that, the people in the region, generally speaking, refer to that group as Daesh. Yeah, which uh, it's insults. A, it's an insult. It's a pejorative term. Over the course of it's the a history, play on words too. Yeah, 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 it's a very complicated thing, and certainly ISIL makes more sense. ISIS, of course, refers to a number of people, including the wonderful uh, Saturday Morning character that I watched, <laughs> and I don't like having her sullied. By that I name. agree. Yeah. A lot of interesting interviews here. A lot of great classic footage uh, from from days and wars past, and uh, they, uh, they they put the story together very, very effectively and efficiently. And uh, then there is uh, another Secrets of the Dead, uh, another tomb thing. This is Cleopatra's lost tomb. This is a little more, a bit more sensationalistic. Uh, there's a, a lot less to learn from, uh, from her tomb than there is to learn from tombs of, uh, of Mesoamerican kings and people and Vikings. But uh, it, it's still it's interesting. 
you know, Kathleen Martinez, who is a, uh, an archaeologist who used to be a criminal lawyer. I don't know how you make that career jump. Uh, she kind of hosts this thing, and it's, uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's interesting, if, if not revelatory. And then lastly, uh, on the fiction front, is the finale of the series Vicious, uh, which has just been absolutely wonderful. And uh, I recommend this just because it, it, it has Derek Jacoby and Ian McKellen in it, and uh, they're just fantastic. They're absolutely fantastic, those two. Um, really, really beautifully done. Uh, great series, and uh, can't, just can't get any better. Great sporting cast. So Derek Jacoby and uh, Ian McKellen, two of our, our priceless, treasured uh, British actors, in a, in a wonderful, wonderful finale to a great series. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that series. Ian McCullen in particular is wonderful. Oh, so good. Uh, what do I got over here? I know everybody's been waiting on this. Collector's Edition, Blu-ray, 3D, uh, digital HD, Captain America, Civil War. Uh, you know, look, I poke a lot at these big uh, Marvel and DC movies, you know, as, as they've come out. Um, but... As they go, this one is actually pretty good. It actually works. I don't think this is terribly well directed. I think they put this together pretty quickly. But I will say, as a standalone, the Russo movie, brothers directing Russo brothers, uh, who did you know the last, uh, who are doing the next uh, Avengers films, yeah. right? Which I think we're going to be two parts. Now it's going to be one part. I've lost track of that. Yeah, that, that's what I understand. But they did the last uh, Captain America, and they do a great job with this as well. They make it very efficiently, and it's more about the script than anything else. The the whole Captain America. Uh, Iron Man split over whether you're going to sort of uh, yeah. play the play the gov- play you know party to the government what they're they're trying to sort of regulate the Avengers now yeah yeah so yeah. we don't get any more stuff get you know wrecked we don't wreck any more cities you, it's, it's always it's interesting to me that that in this storyline and, and it follows the storyline of the, the that actually happens in the Civil War in the, in the graphic comic novel book. comic yeah. books right but yeah. it was always interesting to me that it was Captain America right this is I yeah. wonder if people know I, I think I mentioned this in my written review of the film, that it's Captain America in that storyline who is the person who is reluctant to fall in line with uh, an organizational sort of oversight thing. Mm-hmm. Now, this is Captain America, Captain America, yep. who is in the Army, a captain in the yes. Army. If anyone on the planet would be inclined to engage in a sort of authoritative, you know, yeah. it, it would be the captain. Yeah, it would. He he he's been in the he's been in the military his, his entire life. If if you're somebody who wouldn't want to fall under government authority, it would be the billionaire. It would be the billionaire Tony Stark. <laughs> Why would he want to do that? Yeah. So that little reversal there, something that always struck me as fascinating. And this is full of everything: bonus features of every sort that you can think of, including audio commentaries, a gag wheel, deleted scenes, and extended scenes. Um, so you know, anyway, for the completionist of the the, the the Marvel series, Captain America: Civil War, the collector's edition, good stuff uh, on Blu-ray. Uh, pop star, uh, pop star, never stop stopping. They should have called this <laughs> pop star, never stop popping, because this film is absolutely kinetic from the opening moment to the end. There is never a moment in this film where someone is talking, dancing, jumping, falling down, being hit by something. Uh, there's never a, uh, uh, it's just a relentless movie, making fun of a mostly Rel- Justin Bieber. And that relentless kind of in a good way or a bad way? You know, relentless in my, to my mind in a bad way. If this film would stop to let you take a breather every now and again, you'd probably find some of these jokes funny. But when it's completely relentless, you don't have 
time to laugh at a thing. Yeah. It was actually funny. Something just happened that was funny. Somebody said something funny. Something happened yeah. funny. You'd like a, a beat to, to absorb the funny moment. You can't because we are off to another joke. Uh, and frankly, it's the sort of undermining thing of this film. Ultimately, deleted scenes, gag reel, music videos. Uh, it's funny. Uh, this DVD Blu-ray release is relentless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, backstage stuff, shooting hoops, uh, turn up the beast backstory. That's the name of the, the, the featured commentaries from Andy Samberg and Avi Schaefer and Jocko. Everybody's uh, completely relentless. The movie didn't do as well as I thought it might. The Conjuring 2. Th- this is what bugs me about these, the, the Conjuring films uh, here. The Conjuring. They See, ins- I like the first one. I like the first have, one. I like not- this one, too. I like okay. the, they're both pretty good. And, and, and they're well-made horror films. But the, the thing that the bugs me, they say, the next true story in The Conjuring, the true story of. The thing about The Conjuring films, the first one and this one, they're not true stories, okay? And mm. None of this crap happened anywhere. Uh, but, you know, they make they make decent horror movies. Vera Farmiga is quite good. And special features, um, a wonderful little documentary about the crafting of The Conjuring 2, some deleted scenes and a few other things. So, The Conjuring, if you like the first one, you'll probably enjoy the second one. This is the Blu-ray, um, uh, which is pretty good. So, got a couple from Film Movement. Uh, both of them really, really good. This first one was at Sundance. It's called, <clears throat> it is called uh, Take Me to the River, directing debut from Matt Sobel. It was a great eye. And uh, essentially about a, uh, a gay teenager who is uh, sort of tr- facing uh, all the issues that you would expect a gay teenager to face, except they are during a family reunion, and uh, in Nebraska, no less. So this is, uh, this is dealing very much with character issues, family issues, uh, broader family issues. I like Logan, I like Logan Miller. That kid, the he's young kid that really plays good. Leaving us, he's, he's very good. really, really good. Uh, Matt Sobel and his stars, Logan Miller, Robin Weigert, uh, do the commentary. And then there are uh, cast interviews with Logan Miller and Robin Weigert. Uh, it's a good, solid film. Film Movement made a, made a great move picking this thing up. Some really interesting supporting uh, performances. Azura Sky uh, is also very, very good. Uh, Elizabeth Franz, Josh Hamilton. Uh, it's a good little movie. And then uh, The Automatic Hate was, uh, is another pick, a festival pickup for Film Movement. They grabbed this thing after uh, South by Southwest, which is fast kind of becoming, uh, you know, on par with Sundance and Telluride, frankly. It's becoming, uh, and, and even... even uh, uh, Particularly when it comes to independent films. Yeah. Uh, you know, actual independent films, as opposed to films that are called independent but have, like, George it, Clooney in, in them. In fact, Telluride is almost becoming more of a, of a mainstream festival. It's emerged out of that indie thing because it's now concurrent. It sort of glues together Venice and Toronto. Yeah. So it's premiering a lot of films that also play at Venice and Toronto. And, and if, correct me if I'm wrong. Telluride is the festival where they put out no schedule. Right, you, you simply go to the movies yeah. and you're going to see whatever you're going to see. Yeah, uh, which is an interesting. So, so the indie the indie torch has kind of been passed for you know to now Sundance, Tribeca, and South by Southwest, and to a lesser degree Seattle. So, yeah. uh, it's very interesting. Anyway, um, this is uh, this is one of those family secret movies, The Automatic Hate, directed by Justin Lerner. Uh, also really well acted, very very well put together, uh, and uh, you know Joseph Cross in this case is is uh, the star along with Adelaide Clemens, and uh, they play cousins who uh, have to wrestle with this uh, this family history uh, secret that uh, that is sort of at the center of the film that deals with you know their fathers and, uh, and all this stuff. Um, I'll give you no other details. Commentary with uh, Justin Lerner and the and Justin Cross, uh, Joseph Cross, and then there's some deleted scenes. There's also a short film on here called um, Patriot from uh, Eva Riley, uh, which is 
really interesting. This takes this is a, a British short film, which is uh, very interesting, thematically similar in some respects to The Automatic Hate, hence its reason on here. So those are uh, two good films, The Automatic Hate and Take Me to the River. Film movement continues to do really, really good. Good stuff with festivals. Um, I enjoyed this film when it came out. This is a documentary called All Things Must Pass, particularly salient to folks like us. Uh, Wade, I've been here for 26 years. You've born and raised here in L.A. All Things Must Pass is about the Tower Records. That was on uh, Sunset Boulevard. Man, I spent so many hours in that place. In the twenty six years, you know, was, you know, that I that I it was it was just a, it was a thing. It the, was the Tower Records. I'm sure all communities have all the way back like to the sixties. But this has to be a unique thing because, in fact, it was uh, the spot where rock stars, both yeah. of the community, that mm-hmm. Tower Records wasn't too far from Laurel Canyon. Yep. And in Laurel Canyon was was a that was, was a the spot music scene where the music scene was. You know, everybody lived in Laurel Canyon at one point or another from the yeah. sixties until. Until you know, yeah. much later, and this Tower Records was you know relative to all of that, the you know, performance that's there, and it was it was literally right at the beginning of that part of the Sunset Strip where all the clubs were in yeah, West yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, 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 the whiskey, the, the whiskey, go-go, the, the, the played, rainbow, uh, the rainbow, uh, uh, right down to the coconut teaser. I can't tell you how many times I played at the coconut teaser. Um, all of that was right there. Yeah. And that's, there was a. Um, there was a Holiday Inn that was like the rock and roll yeah. Holiday Inn where yeah. all the rockers would go, where That's Johnny it. Depp would go and tear up sure. rooms and all of that. That's all in that room there. This is directed, by the way, by Colin Hanks. Um, uh, John, you know, Tom Hanks' son. Tom Hanks' son, sort of a child of that period. So a really, really neat movie, particularly you know if you happen to grow up around here. Um, uh, all Things Must Pass. So Vaxxed, from cover up to catastrophe, uh, this is that very, very controversial uh, anti-vax documentary that became a big deal at Tribeca. Yeah, and and it, it was this, in, and then it, it was, was out, and it was, was back. Yeah. yeah, and uh, you know a lot of people are not happy about this film. This is from Cinema Libre, who you know Cinema Libre takes chances with documentaries. They tend to be of a very progressive nature. That's sort of their brand. Uh, so it's interesting that they have elected to uh, get behind this film. Um, you you ha- again. It, I, I would recommend people watch this film. I am very much pro-vaccination. I, I have no qualms about saying that. I've got a three-year-old daughter who has had all of her necessary vaccinations and will continue to get them. There's mm. just no way that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to vaccinate her. However, we have met people who do not believe in vaccination. We don't let our daughter play with their children. But, uh, you know, I, they have a point of view, and it is important to understand their point of view if you, if you want to at least empathize or have a discussion or a dispute. You've got to know where they come from, and this is a good primer in that. It, 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 what's relevant here in this, in this discussion of vaccinations is the, is the understanding of, of what's going on in the mind of people. Uh, yes. Who do not? That's what's relevant. There is no question yeah. about the efficacy of a vaccine. Take it from me, a guy. I was in the military for years. They shot me up with everything on the planet and sent me all around the world, yeah. right, it, uh, to places where people were getting sick and dying from all kinds of horrible things. Never got sick, and you know, I'm yeah. didn't die. I'm still here. Why? Because the United States <laughs> government wisely <laughs> shot me up with everything that you're supposed to get shot up with. So that's what's inter- interesting and important about these films is that it's the mindset. It's like what's going on in the zeitgeist not the science when they when they question whether or not there is a controversy 
whether or not there's a scientific controversy. That's when I come to have an issue. Yeah. And that's what sort of happened with this film, which is why it was in Tribeca and then not in Tribeca. And this is what's interesting. Like, like so many films, they put all of the little laurels of all the festivals that it's been in. Mm. But they also put, if you notice down there, they put World Fest Houston and Tribeca with little X's <laughs> through with them. little X's. Meaning, yeah. you know, we were banned. So it gives it a little taboo quality. It's, a worth, it's worth checking out. Vaxxed from cover up to catastrophe. Whether you agree with it or not, it is worth knowing this point of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got one over here. This is a really, really. Uh, oh nope, actually, that's the wrong film. I'm gonna do the. I'm gonna do the uh, Wonders of the Arctic 3D instead. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful documentary about that, uh, narrated by Victor Garber. It's one of those things where you have the polar bears, you know, out there on those. On, on those loaded, uh, lonely floating icebergs. Uh, and, and basically what this film does is uh, attempt to understand uh, what's going on in the Arctic, it, literally what animals are in distress, uh, what the ice flows are actually doing. Uh, and it's beautifully shot. They go both the, uh, above the ice flows and beneath the ice flows. You have this extraordinary IMAX filmed uh, sort of photography that's attempting to get out of this. What, what I do like about it, it's a David Lickey film. What I do like about it, that it, it's not um, it's not a le- sort of left-wing uh, environmentalist uh, sort of screed. It's not that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, this is beautiful. Uh, uh, these enjoy places. it with us. I, enjoy it with us. And, you know, and then there's some relative facts about some of the things that are actually happening here that you know, no one can really argue about particularly. Same thing uh, with a second film from the same company called The Last Reef, uh, Cities Beneath, Beneath the Sea. Um, uh, an, an, an extremely beautiful sort of film for IMAX experience beneath the ocean. Uh, across several tropical reefs. Um, yeah, so, look, even if you don't do anything but put this stuff on and just watch it and listen to, again, some of the facts being reported in these films about what's happened to some of these pristine areas, uh, it's worth it for that, if nothing else. So, really, a uh, great, great little documentary here called Sons of Ben, the movie. Uh, this is just so unbelievably interesting. So, um, here's, the, here's the deal. Major League Soccer, I know Mark and a lot of other people don't really get into soccer, and I, uh, that's fine. Uh, I'm a soccer maniac. So um, in, uh, uh, Philadelphia did not have one of the original Major League Soccer teams. And for soccer fans in Philadelphia, that was a really big deal. And they always expected one. And after a decade, still didn't happen. So a bunch of people um, in Philadelphia created a fan group called Sons of Ben, na- based, named for Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. Of course, Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin. And uh, the, the, the purpose was to is basically be a lobbying group to bring a major league soccer team to Philadelphia. And um, that's basically what this story is. And it's, it's a gr- gr- a, an amazing grassroots story of soccer fandom in a place that... Uh, you know, was resistant to really validating that. And it is it is quite a story. It is surprisingly not really about soccer, but it's really about the people in this group and what this effort did for them and the bond that it created. And, and uh, it's really interesting. Mm. It's, a, it's a, such an unusual story. Got another doc here. Uh, first Monday in May which is all about the, uh, the Costume Institute's uh, fashion exhibition um, at, the muse- at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, and the, this, the, you know, this, this whole uh, vast, elaborate thing that they did in 2015 uh, called China Through the Looking Glass, uh, which is this, this, um, this just really gaudy, weird, elaborate... 
um, uh, just I don't even want to call it a show. It's like a it's like part costume show and part art exhibition. And it's uh, it's just one of those things that could only exist in the fashion world of New York. It's mm. a very, very unusual uh, thing. Anyway, this is all about how it was put together. And uh, there's almost no real way to explain it. It's like fashion meets museum meets modern art meets... Mm. It meets showbiz. It's just uh, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Anyway, uh, this is uh, the first Monday in May. And then uh, also have a documentary here uh, that was – this is actually really, really good. This is from film movement called Papa Rosen uh, by a filmmaker named Gaston Solnicki or Solnitsi, uh, which is one of these uh, very personal family films. There are, uh, there are a number of these that, that come out every once in a while, people who – um, shoot, uh, who shoot basically documentaries about their own family history, but it becomes more than just a, uh, um, a home movie. It's more than something that's just relative to their family. It's interesting to everyone's family. And uh, in this case, um, Solnicki uh, is basically beginning with the story of his grandmother, who's a Holocaust survivor, and uh, it dovetails down from there and, and how that affects just about everyone in the family and how the family history really, really um, uh, trickles down to even uh, many, many generations later. Um, Solnicki is, uh, is now in Argentine. The family, of course, emigrated from Europe to Argentina, but uh, you know those roots are still very, very strong. So that is a very, very interesting film from Film Movement called Papirosen, P-A-P-I-R-O-S-E-N. Mm. Um, I have this extraordinary documentary. Uh, it's called Hand Gestures. Stuff in here that I did not understand, that I did not know at all. All right. So this is a film about um, an Italian foundry uh, that's been around for more than 100 years uh, where they cast bronze sculptures, right? I, I did not know that bronze sculptures are made today exactly the same as they were hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And, and I had, you know, the, 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 the chemical ingredients, the, the smelting of the, of the metal, uh, the way that yeah. they are cast are done. And uh, they're taught by artisans. You're taught by, you can't go to college and learn how to do this. It's an artisan thing. And it's absolutely extraordinary. That's what this film is about, uh, Hand Gestures, a film by Francisco Claudici. Uh, and it's a perfectly beautiful film that, uh, you know, what can I tell you, uh, educated me about something that I didn't understand at all whatsoever. Uh, it's a DVD, by the way, from, uh, uh, what is this, uh, Kino Lorber. Uh, here's a doc that I really enjoyed a lot, uh, even though it is clearly kind of a puff piece. It's uh, Tab Hunter Confidential. Uh, Tab Hunter, for those who don't know, was one of the original kind of hunky beefcake uh, actors of the 1960s. And he was also very, very gay, so they had to keep that under wraps, and he didn't have a problem well, with that. While, while being a heartthrob. While being a, a movie heartthrob, uh, the whole thing. I mean, it's not an original Hollywood story that we just know from Rock Hudson on all mm. the way back to, you know, uh, Cary Grant and numerous others. Uh, if you were gay or you were bi, that just was not something we were going to market. You had to, uh, you had to accept the image that we wrote for you at the studio publicity department. So, um, in 1950s is when uh, you know Tab Hunter becomes this huge box office star and uh, has a little bit of a music career as well. And um, the uh, this is a this is essentially a uh, you know he his he has had a relationship um, with his one-time uh, producer for, you know, forever. And uh, that they made this movie together, and it's, very, it's based on his book, and um, it's, this goes back and sort of tells the story of how he juggled 
the issues of his sexuality and his career and how they uh, kept it under wraps. And uh, this you is know, all during that sort of L.A. confidential period. Absolutely, and how you know uh, who was willing to play along and what actresses were willing to always be uh, be party to uh, maintaining the facade. It's really quite interesting. It it doesn't really get scandalous. It doesn't break new ground. So it's not it's not. Um, it doesn't get uh, gossipy, but it also isn't really intellectual. It isn't, doesn't really deal with all with the industry, with the um, how would I put it, the politics and the structure of the industry that maintains this mentality even to today, mm. or the economics that dictate it. It doesn't really get into any of that. It just wants to focus on Tab and what a great guy he is, and how well adjusted he is, and how happy he is, and that's wonderful because Tab Hunter is, you know, you 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 leave this doc just having nothing but admiration for how incredibly comfortable in his skin he is. Yeah, he's yeah. totally okay with this. He's not hiding from anything. He never really did hide from anything. Mm. He just didn't cop to it. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is really an interesting angle. So uh, that's Tab Tab Hunter Confidential. You know, I mean, still to this to this day, Rupert Everett. Uh, Rupert Everett's career. This is a contemporary actor. You know Rupert Everett from yeah. from uh, yeah. uh, being earnest and all that yeah, kind yeah. Of stuff. So so you know from the time best friends wedding, best friends wedding, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Right. So uh, you know you know Rupert Everett, uh, a, a, a movie star at a certain period. After Rupert Everett came out, and he came out, uh, you know, he was—it wasn't always yeah. everyone always knew he was gay, but there was a moment when he actually came out. It changed the dynamic of his career. Rupert Everett didn't get leading man romantically it roles did. anymore. He was—he was planning to do a a James Bond spoofy knockoff about a James Bond spy figure who was gay, mm. right after My Best Friend's Wedding, and that obviously never happened. Yeah. Yeah, because so, yeah, yeah. that doesn't work if the, if the guy playing Bond is actually gay. Yeah. Then it's just a gay movie. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's Hollywood, baby. Uh, from BBC Earth, The Hunt. Uh, from the, this is from the, the, the same folks who made Planet Earth and, and uh, a Frozen Planet and all those wonderful flood of films narrated by David Attenborough. The interesting thing about this movie is that it is, in, effect, in, in, in fact, about uh, predators and prey. It's about how different animals, different animal groupings across the world engage in the act, the, the very sort of natural act of, uh, of hunting uh, down their prey. It, it, you know, look, this is not uh, light watching for folks who are squeamish about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But for folks who are interested in the way the world, the natural world actually works when it comes to some of these things, you'll find out some fascinating things here. But, you know, you don't want to just pop this in with mm, the kids. No. <laughs> the Hunt from BBC Earth. Um, I also have here Skyline. So in 1979, Arthur C. Clarke wrote this novel. In the concept of the novel, there is this space elevator, literally an elevator, connected to the Earth that extends all the way into space uh, up to a space station. It, there, there's all kinds of complicated stuff involved here. Yeah, that, would, that is, would be. <laughs> it, but, but, but the thing of it is, it, while it's science fiction in the context of, of that story, it's not really science fiction. It's a thing that lots of folks have thought about doing for years. There are, there are all kinds of reasons why that would actually work. And this little doc here is about a bunch of people who actually intend to try to build one. These sort of um, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, sort of like Elon Musk types who believe that in fact a space elevator could be built, and there are all kinds of good reasons to actually do it. This this doc sort of talked about all, all of that. These guys are not rich like those guys. <laughs> These doctors, uh, Dr. Bradley and a Dr. Edwards. But the math that they do and the concepts that they have are really super interesting. Uh, and man, I got to tell you, if you're a science geek and nerd like me, you know, this kind of stuff is, uh, is, is fascinating to you. So check it out. This is also from Kino Lober, Skyline, the Space Elevator Documentary. 
And then I have over here uh, Hockney, a film by Randall White, David Hockney, of course, being the extraordinary uh, Los Angeles-based artist uh, who is fascinating. Uh, and, and who is, who is by the way, Fernando Treba, the uh, Spanish director of the Oscar-winning Belle Epoque and many really? other fine films, is mad about Hockney. Just want to point that out for any Fernando Trevo fans. Well, what happens in this film is Hockney takes the director, Randall Wright, on a, on a deep and very specific uh, walk through his own personal archive of art that he's done over the last 45, uh, 50 years since the 1960s. Uh, so we, you, you get to see in this documentary art that no one has ever seen uh, except David Hockney. Uh, work that he's done uh, that he's never shown anyone, you get to see in this film, which is just uh, fascinating, uh, particularly if you're a bit of an art geek fan, as I happen to be. So check that one out. Uh, this is from Film Movement, uh, Hockney, a film by Randall White. We have got a lot of really interesting classic films today, uh, and uh, I'm going to go first through the uh, this, this month's lineup of Olive releases. Olive has licensed, once again, a fascinating collection of titles um, a lot of really, really interesting um, kind of exploitation stuff th this month. Really, really interesting stuff. The first one is The Monster of Piedras Blancas. Now, this has a really gory uh, uh, artwork on the, on the cover of this, this kind of uh, creature from the Black Lagoon looking monster holding a, 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 a decapitated human head. The title, The Monster of Piedras Blancas, means The Fiend That Walks Lover's Beach. That is uh, the subtitle to the title. That is effectively what it is about. Uh, clearly very much inspired by the creature of the Black Lagoon. Uh, this is from 1958, right smack in the middle of the exploitation film uh, moment. And um, it, is, uh, it is all about this little tiny community, Piedras Blancas, that uh, suddenly is facing what would normally be a serial killer problem, but it, of course, turns out that there is a, a monster uh, responsible for doing all of this stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, very much a knockoff of the creature from the Black Lagoon, but rougher, tougher, gorier, and, uh, and with some really interesting sociopolitical subtext to it. But uh, is Adrian Barbeau in it? No, no. Okay, what another one? Yeah. Uh, so that is that is one that they just uh, that re it's a really a fascinating curiosity that they went and dug up. Uh, the uh, Barbara Steele and Robert Fleming also star in the horrible Doctor Hitchcock. That is Hitchcock without a T. H I C H is how they spell it. I'm sure because they were probably afraid of uh, some kind of a lawsuit. This is uh, a right proper lawsuit. A proper lawsuit. Uh, this is getting down to the end of the uh, exploitation era from 1964, and uh, clearly owes uh, a little something to the gothic films of Roger Corman. Uh, it's kind of in that same vein, which uh, it's a little bit between the Roger Corman uh, Poe films and the uh, the uh, Peter Cushing and uh, and uh, Christopher Lee films that they made for Hammer. Uh, it has kind of a little gothic imprint of both of those, mm. and it, and, it, and it works well. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a bit of a, a, a mad scientist film. It uh, borrows a little bit from Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, and all that stuff. It's a it's a it's an interesting movie. The, the horrible Doctor Hitchcock, H I C H C O C K. Jekyll and Hyde together again is a wacky, nutty '80s era uh, riff on Jekyll and Hyde, directed by Jerry Belson, who was a big sitcom director. Stuff like The Odd Couple did yeah. a lot of stuff with the. Uh, 
uh, with the you know all the great sitcom guys, but with Gary Marshall in particular. But um, it, I don't know that this film works very well. It feels like a really kind of weird, low-budget uh, precursor to stuff like My Science Project and, and Weird Science. And it feels like that stuff is about to hatch out of this movie. Yeah. Still, uh, it is an interesting 80s-era throwback. It feels of the 80s. It's very much the, 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 the vibe of the 80s, the sensibilities of the 80s. Uh, so it is, a, it is an archival film in many respects. Another favorite of mine uh, when I was growing up, Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda in Yours, Mine, and Ours. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, she's got eight. This is like the, the Brady Bunch on steroids. This is just terrifying. You know, he had ten kids. She had eight. Uh, they got together, and uh, suddenly they got a family of 20 people. Uh, <laughs> I still love that movie. It's just, a, it's, a, it's just a crazy, crazy movie. And the only reason it works is because the director, Melvin Shavelson, is a really, really good director and was able to juggle 20 people and all of the madness that that kind of a plot entails. Uh, does a really good job of it. And Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda, just both of them great actors. 1968, they're both well past their prime. Yeah. But they're perfect for something like this. Yeah. Uh, the movie it, is really about all the kids running around. And it is. They're doing, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and of course, he's a Navy officer, so that adds, you know, a little bit. Uh, it, there's kind of a little bit of the sound of music thing there, the, uh, the naval officer who can't really control his own family. Yeah, uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's very much of its day, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's based on a book, which I'm completely un, unfamiliar with, but, uh, you know, Tim Matheson shows up in this thing, a very young Tim Matheson, Tom Bosley, uh, Tracy Nelson, Morgan Brittany is even in this. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And then uh, the last two regular Olive titles are, uh, are real novelties. Commando Cody, Sky Marshal of the Universe. This is 12 episodes in this fascinating 1953 serial, which is, uh, it's kind of like, uh, it, it, it clearly does not want to be Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. It clearly wants to be cooler than both of them. It wants a hero who's, uh, who's a little bit more of a, uh, less of a kind of a space guy who's just trapped by circumstance, a little more of a proactive hero. That was the idea here. And it's very easy to see where the Rocketeer came from because the Rocketeer is, is, is completely a descendant of Commander Cody. Oh, yeah. So uh, Commander Cody is really, a, a, this is a great serial, a lot of fun. People who, uh, who love these uh, serials of the 1950s will really enjoy this. This is, I think, one of the better ones from the era. Judd Holdren, Aline Town, Craig Kelly, and Gregory Gay uh, star in this. And then the last regular uh, Olive title is A Discovery I Cannot Even Believe is on Blu-ray. This is Cecil B. DeMille's The Captive. Uh, This is from 1915. A lot of people thought this film was dead and buried, impossible to find, and they have found it and done quite a nice job with it. This is a silent era uh, legend that is uh, essentially a melodrama about a family during the Balkan War of Mm. that period which is it amazingly reflects a lot of what's going on now issues with turkey and the balkans and you know religion doesn't play a huge part in this but it is in subtext uh really really interesting very well done uh very epic really reveals demille uh even as uh, in, by 1915 as a guy who had sort of he was on his way to making 
bigger and better uh, films, more elaborate films, really very, very skillfully put together. So uh, that's a that's just a beautiful discovery. 1915's The Captive by Cecil B. DeMille. A lot of people forget that even, even at the beginning of the film industry, there was an international film market. In fact, oh, yeah. the film market has already has always been international. Uh, and, and people have always been interested in those big sort of transcontinental yeah. stories that was, yeah. that was always there. Uh, what else you got over there? Oh, uh, this is from Slasher Video. Uh, Man Killers. Uh, you know what? This is uh, th- just a lot of fun. If you like movies about women who are just... Uh, this is sort of the descendant of the women in prison movies. Yeah. Now these are women who are just armed to the teeth with uh, with paramilitary weaponry, and uh, that's how they wreak their revenge. This is an exploitation film of the 80s in the uh, trauma mold. This is uh, 1987. And, you know, it's just uh, girls with feathered hair, those 80s hairstyles, lots of guns, and... Uh, uh, unleashing hell. Uh, it, it's it's ridiculous. It's silly. It's not quite on a trauma level. May as well be, but uh, you know what? Pretty great. I enjoyed it enough, just the same. <laughs> I remember this one that I have here. Uh, speaking of trauma and that whole level of movies, this is a Charles Band film. Yep, from that whole group. It's called yep. Maelstrom: The Destruction of Jared Sin. Oh, there was a whole there was a whole series of these films yeah. that, that, that those brothers put out back in the day on a desert planet. Uh, the warlord Jared is trying to convince mutants. Blah blah blah. Whatever the hell <laughs> doesn't really make any difference. These movies were a lot of fun back in the day, and I remember really thoroughly enjoying them. At the time, and and frankly, watching these movies back in the day, which were all just sort of knockoffs of big studio movies uh, of the same themes and the same, you know, in the way that like, movies like Ice Storm with Peter Strauss was really just a knockoff of Star Wars, and uh, and so you would have that happening all the time. This was the next level down. So you had the big movies, and then you had the sort of like B studio knockoffs of those movies, and then you had the sort of like independent uh, C and D studi- studio knockoffs of the knockoffs. Uh, Oh, it was ridiculous. Uh, but you could actually make – we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, one of your friends, the, the, the interview. Oh, from last from week. From last week. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, you know, getting movies made and the genre. Yep. That was what was going on with these guys you know, way back in the day. So Charles Band, uh, uh, it's high noon at the end of the universe. you got to love that tagline uh, for that one. I have here Raising Cain, 1992. Oh, my gosh. Brian De Palma. Yep. John Lithgow. Uh, L- Lolita Davidovich. Look, I will. I look. I did. This the, is I, one of those cheesy. You know, it's, oh, it's it's, it was, it's it's De Palma doing in, that Hitchcock fake Hitchcock. Hitch, yeah, mode. yeah. And look, I, I did the junket for this movie, and I, I and I remember specifically, even in '92, not having any idea whatsoever this movie was about, and I still don't. Uh, nevertheless, this movie, uh, the most interesting thing about it, it has a never before seen. Um, well, what w- what he's done here, De Palma, there were issues with the movie at the time. He has reordered the movie as he in- originally intended it to be laid out in the film. It will supposedly make it clear, a little bit clearer about what's going on. It's something like what's going on in Dress to Kill. Remember that movie, Michael Caine? Absolutely. And, and all that kind of stuff. There's a split personality kind yeah. of thing going on in, in, in the movie. So any, I intend to watch this so that I can figure out after 24 years – what the hell's going on in it? Brian, <laughs> Brian Palmer's Collector's Edition, Raising Cain. Uh, and then I've got Transformers, the movie, uh, the animation. Uh, yeah. The animation Transformers, the movie, uh, which in fact is a film. Uh, let me get my dates right on this. That came out in 1986. What's interesting about this film, Transformers, the movie, uh, is the voices in it. You have Orson Welles. You have Robert Stack. And you have Leonard Nimoy. 
doing the sort of main characters in this Transformers, the movie. I haven't seen, the, I didn't see this movie back in 1986 when it came out, and I haven't seen it. I've seen, of course, all of the Michael Bay films, all of the Michael Bay Transformers films. Somehow in my gut, I'm pretty sure this is going to be better. Uh, than those Michael Bay <laughs> films. I, I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to plug it in. I'm going to check it out, but I think it'll be better. Uh, on Blu-ray and digital download, uh, so you can check it out pretty much anywhere. Uh, those are some of the voices in it. There's a featurette and some storyboards and some other stuff. Can you, I mean, really, seriously, Orson Welles, Leonard Nimoy, and Robert Stack. It's not bad. In the middle 80s, doing the voices of the Transformers characters. All right, we've got foreign and television left. Uh, just a few titles. Real quickly, on Blu-ray... Uh, is uh, Godzilla 1984, The Return of Godzilla. Is it any better than any other Godzilla film? No, it just happened to be in 1984. They made another Godzilla film, a Toho Godzilla film, and it's just as cheesy as all the ones you remember from the 60s and 70s, and that's kind of fun. Uh, that original Godzilla film. I mean, the original original. The original not, original, not, not, yeah. Actually, I like the one that's edited that has, you know, Raymond Burr in it, too. Yeah. I like that, too. But the original original Gojira. God, Gojira. Yeah. That's a very dark and very serious film. Yeah, I these mean, aren't. The, the guy in the rubber suit, notwithstanding. But, yeah, after yeah. that, that was yeah. kind of, yeah. No, this is, uh, you know, this is just, this is silly. They're just trying to get this, they're trying to get this thing kick-started again. Uh, 1984, Godzilla 1984. Uh, and uh, you know it, it's it's just it's guy in a suit and it's silly and you can watch it in English or you can watch it in Japanese with uh, with subtitles. I, I have to say I prefer watching these films in English. It just makes it more ridiculous. I don't know why. <laughs> I just it's how I watched them as a kid. Uh, a fantastic Criterion uh, release this week, which makes me so happy, so happy. This is the story of the last chrysanthemum. Uh, by Kenji Mizuguchi, who I think is far and away the most underrated Japanese director of all time because he's not really a Japanese new wave director. He didn't come around at the same time as Kurosawa and, uh, Ozu, and, and Ozu and Ozu and that particular generation. That was not that was not his thing. He was an earlier pioneer. He he pioneered that period in the 1930s mainly, uh, 30s and 40s. That's that was his era. And um, Mizuguchi is, an, is a master, and his films are not sufficiently appreciated here in the West. Uh, it's just too bad. Uh, so the story of The Last Chrysanthemum is essential viewing for anybody who wants to really, really understand the poetry of, of his films. Uh, again, not, made in 1939 when the rest of the world was watching, or at least Hollywood was watching uh, everything from The Wizard of Oz to Gone with the Wind to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and uh, you know the, all the other films of 1939. Um, but uh, those who were elsewhere in in Asia and to some degree in Europe, anywhere that uh, Japanese films were getting any kind of uh, distribution, or even you know, in a, perhaps a handful of art houses in the United States that, at that time, where it was possible to see a, a foreign language film, uh, I would assume, I, th- certainly thirty nine, you're not going to be seeing Japanese films here. No, there's no way. No, no, because they, we're about to go to war with them. Yeah, so. Wherever we, we, we were, in, we we were thinking about interning people. Even the, no, yeah. no, yeah, that's a, that's that's way There's, early. That's that's not even going to be a chance. So wherever you had a chance to see this film, I want to assume that that you know Mizuguchi probably did not. Re- that's that may be a good reason why he just missed, or the world missed out on him because his films were being made in Japan at a time when yeah. it just wasn't possible to get them out because Kurosawa didn't really break free until after until the war. After the war, yeah. 
Well, in any case. And then there was sort of a retrospective period for Kurosawa where we went back and yeah, looked at right. all those movies. He missed that. Yeah. Well, Mizuguchi, just a, an absolutely masterful filmmaker. Beautiful, beautiful camera work, wonderful photography, uh, heartbreaking performances. Uh, and this is, this, this is a very, very simple story about the, uh, the, the adoptive son of a kabuki actor who is uh, trying to make it in doing what you're supposed to do in Kabuki, which is that the men play, you know, certain men specialize in yeah. playing female roles. And uh, the, uh, the, the way that this, uh, it's, it's how this all dovetails into various family relationships, and uh, it, it's a very slow build, uh, much like Kabuki is as well, but it really, uh, where it goes is just is, is extraordinary. And you can, you can see where many other Japanese filmmakers of subsequent eras, especially the New Wave, mm. uh, like Oshima and Ozu, to a lesser degree Kurosawa, but certainly um, uh, many of the others who made the more humanistic films where they sort of took their inspiration. Yeah. Uh, it is, Tokyo uh, Story. And, and Tokyo yeah. Story. Yeah. I, you, you could even... You, could even you, you can draw a straight line. You can draw a straight line. It's absolutely beautiful. So uh, Criterion has done us a great favor with this Blu-ray of The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum. I hope this bodes well for many more Kenji Mizuguchi movies to come. And uh, then lastly, we have some MHZ television stuff. Great foreign language titles. Uh, Nicolas Le Floche, Volume 3, Episodes 11 and 12. Uh, continuing the great Nicolas Le Floche uh, series from France, which is uh, you know just really great uh, 18th century uh, detective stuff out of French television. They do a really great job. Wonderful period recreation. I mean, it's uh, you know it's a it's a procedural from the uh, the rev- the pre revolutionary period. Yeah. What do you want? It's it, it just it's fabulous. Really, really good performances. Uh, we've covered that before. Uh, Pierre Arditi in Blood of the Vine. This is season four. We've talked about this series as well. Uh, this is you know uh, basically murder she wrote, except with a guy that loves wine. Mm. And then uh, the uh, the Little Murders Agatha, of Agatha, Agatha Christie. Agatha, yeah. Little Murders of Agatha Christie. Uh, this comes from uh, from France. So this is a French take on Agatha Christie, and uh, a number of her uh, a number of her most popular mysteries done French style. Uh, Hercule Poirot and uh, Miss Marple mysteries specifically: The Moving Finger, Five Little Pigs, The Ebb and the Flow, The Knife in the Neck, and Sleeping Murder. And I got to tell you, Agatha Christie works in many respects better in French than in English. Yeah, interesting. Kind of kind of a nice twist. <laughs> I never think about it much, but those titles are so sharp: The Knife Aren't in they? the Neck, The yeah. Ebb and the Flow. <laughs> Just really, really fantastic stuff. Um, I got a couple here that I'm going to knock off for. So um, th- this was one that a lot of people missed, if, despite the fact that it's dominated for several Emmys. Emmys all the way uh, is the story. Uh, Brian Cranston, uh, Brian Cranston, and Anthony Mackie, uh, LBJ Cran- and Cranston uh, playing the LBJ Martin and Martin Luther King Jr. And it's about that first year in office. LBJ's first year in office after the assassination of Kennedy. And when, uh, and when uh, um, uh, Dr. King was lobbying hard for the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which is something that LBJ wanted to do. In the, in trying to, so all the events of Selma and all of that kind of stuff is relevant in the context of this film. This film sort of like goes behind the scenes of all of that. Brian Cranston doing an outstanding job as LBJ. Let me tell you something about Brian Cranston. We think about Brian, we think about Breaking Bad. Okay, great, fantastic, good work. On Breaking Bad, not gonna. Brian Cranston is an outstanding character actor. He did excellent work year ago, maybe it was two, as, as Trumbo, played Trumbo in yep. that movie. Best thing about that movie is him yep. playing Trumbo. Yep. Character actor, right? Here, he plays a dead on 
LBJ, right? Uh, just, just, just an alphabet. You, you run through Brian Cranston's career, and what he really is is a uh, chameleon. Brian Cranston oh, is a classic character actor, uh, the way character actors used to be. He can simply play the guy. He will become the guy. He'll do the damn thing. How much? How much of this film? Because I I had the feeling that this film came too closely on the heels of Selma. It, 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 it's yeah, exactly the right. People were ready too too ready to compare. You know who's the better LBJ? Who's the better MLK? Right? That that was just that was too much. It, 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 there needed to be a little more breathing time between the two. And in a certain way, if you're a political person, this is a bit of a corrective to Selma. Selma is too harsh on LBJ. Yeah, uh, Selma, uh, for dramatic reasons and purposes, and I love Selma. I gave it a great review uh, when I wrote it. But, but you know, as a person from a particular particular era and and uh, in political mindset, that history was a history that I know. Uh, LBJ is a very interesting character. But one thing LBJ wanted to do was pass that Civil yeah. Rights Act, and Selma's a little too hard on him. Uh, this movie sort of corrects that just a wee. A uh, little bit. Uh, I've also got the People versus O.J. Simpson over here. I'm going to admit something right now. <laughs> Didn't watch a single episode of it. <laughs> Neither did I. W- what the hell would I do that for? Yeah. You and I, we we were here. Uh, yeah. We wa- I watched O.J. You could from Everyone, your house. You could yes. probably see O.J. I I had you know what I had a friend visit around that same time that I had to give the O.J. tour to. Mm. She came in from Sweden. A uh, friend that I'd met in the Cannes Film Festival, and the first thing I, that she wanted to do was go go to Disneyland? No. Go to SeaWorld? No. I, wa- I want to see the OJ tour. I was like, <laughs> really? You want to see, like, the, 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 what, do you, what do you want me to take? Well, well take me. Actually, she, you know where the first thing she wanted to see? She wanted to see where the riots happened, the Rodney King riots. I was like, really? This is what you want to see in L.A.? You want me to take you past, like, the, the burned-out facades mm-hmm. of, 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 okay, fine. So I drove her down Crenshaw. And then she said, uh, "Now let's do the OJ tour." I was like, "Okay, let's go to Rockingham. There, that's the house." Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange thing, but I, but I must say that you know I, because I wanted to, yeah. you know, I, I was thinking about it in a sort of historical context, yeah. and I sat down and I thought to myself, "What the hell am I doing?" You yeah. know, this is my actual history. I'm sure that these performances are fine. I just uh, the, the casting alone made me cringe, and I'm sure Cuba is really good in it, but I just I, 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 yeah, I can't. Act, but I you can't. know, John I had John Travolta as uh, Kardashian. Yeah, yeah, and, no, you know, the, yeah. Uh, you know who who knew what his spawn would go on. <laughs> To do if I if I'd have known that was going to happen, I'd have convicted OJ. Oh, uh, what do you got over there? Okay, got a couple on uh, on DVDs. CSI Cyber, the final season. You know, that's the final season because CSI is already so far removed from real police work when you're looking through microscopes yeah. that when you move it to the level of cyber, there's no real police work going on here. This is this is this is all detective work in a lab. And even if you even though you have Good actors here, even though you have Ted Danson, uh, you know, even though you've got uh, Dawson, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gotta quit it, doing that. You just, it just, I'm sorry, it just, um, James Vanderbeek, people, James Vanderbeek, yes. Dawson, I should, I should, yeah, James Vanderbeek, uh, it, you know, even though you've got, um, Patricia Arquette, Patricia Arquette it just. It just it's it's dull. It, it, it's it, just a dull it, series. You it's can just, only go CSI so many times. Yeah, it's just it's just it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. So CSI Cyber, the final season, uh, that that dies a welcome death. And then actually a show that's uh, much better than I really ever expected it to be, Chicago PD season three. 
uh, Dick Wolf, when he ran out of uh, when he ran out of uh, Law and Order series to do, he turned to Chicago and decided he was just going to do a show about every single uh, la- first responder that <laughs> he could, in, all the first responders in Chicago. And uh, this is the third of the three shows. You know, he's got his cop show, his fireman yeah, show, and his, and his doctor yeah. show. So Chicago PD season three. This is the third. It's a good show. I got to be honest. Along with Chicago Fire and Chicago Med, uh, and there are crossover episodes to make sure that you're of aware so. of the other sh- yeah. series. Yeah, yeah. Um, got to do that. But uh, it's I a good show. Talk about a dynasty. I mean, it, Dick Wolf yeah. is just—it's ridiculous. He just finds a way. Uh, but anyway, uh, it is. There's there are really really good stories here, and uh, it's it's gritty, and in many respects, I think it's better stuff than uh, than Law and Order. So uh, that is season three, 23 episodes. Well done. I've never been able to get my mind around that. Have, uh, I have here the, f- the complete first season of Quantico. Yeah. Okay, look, I, I don't like this series. <laughs> a lot of people love this series. I, a lot of people love this yeah. series. I, you know, started out watching the series, you know, watched the first three episodes. And, you, you know, after three episodes, this was a perfectly ludicrous television program. Uh, with these beautiful, beautiful uh, people all uh, joining the FBI. Uh, and as we sort of work our way through which one of these people is going to be some sort of underground terrorist or whatever the hell is going on in this series. But I don't know. Again, I found it um, to have no connection whatsoever to any sort of real police work, certainly FBI work, any place on the planet. Nevertheless, a lot of people love this. And, and look, I can see that this young lady who leads this show is absolutely breathtaking and beautiful, uh, Miss Chopra. And, uh, you know, I'm glad she's on television. I just wish she was in a better television program. Uh, nevertheless, a lot of people love it. Uh, last one I have over here is a show that I, in fact, love. I'm nutty about this show, and it's, that really doesn't make any sense. One of the better DC shows, The Flash. This is the second complete season. Um, love this show. I love The Flash. Look, I didn't, the only thing I don't understand about The Flash... Uh, it's. I don't understand why the kid who plays the Flash in this television show, Grant, to whatever. Yeah, it's is, not in the movie. It's not the get, kid uh, playing the Flash in the movie. Because Warner Brothers is not smart, and they seem to think that uh, they can. That if you're making movies, you want somebody like Zack Snyder, Godfathering the movies, mm. and that for television, Greg. Ber- no, Greg Berlanti. Whatever mistake he made with the Green Lantern movie, forget about that. He's figured it out on TV. All these shows. All of his DC Supergirl. stuff. Supergirl. Supergirl. And we're going to talk about Arrow here in a second when, when you finish that. It's, it's, they're, they're all sharp. Yeah. They're all really sharp. They should let Berlanti hand, hand him the reins, let him do the movies too. He could, put, he could tie all these things together. Tie and it all up. Anyway, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy this uh, uh, digital HD with ultraviolet, so you can watch it just about any place. Uh, four hours worth of special behind-the-scenes features. The Flash. And season. likewise, the fourth season of Arrow, which is the amazingly smart reinvention of Green Arrow that uh, that Berlanti did for television, uh, which is just in, I mean the one if there was one member of the Justice League that I never would have imagined they could actually figure out how to put into a series or a movie, it would have been Green Arrow. Yeah, because he's got the little Robin Hood cap and the whole thing. He's a bow and arrow. I don't. It's like what do you? How does this ever even escape a comic book and and feel not dorky? You know what? He did it, and that's why I think Berlanti is the man. Uh, Arrow is a really sharp show. It keeps getting better. Uh, with you know now with with Hive H I V E the the you know the evil organization uh, of Hive in the in the picture it just gets better and better and and you know Canary is in this thing and it's just it's so cool 
and it keeps getting better, and I love what they're doing. Tons of featurettes. Uh, there's a great crossover bit with The Flash. They've done a couple of those. Yeah. And, um, you know, unaired scenes and gag reel. This, again, is like The Flash, is Blu-ray and uh, ultraviolet. It with, is terrific. With Supergirl coming over from the network, uh, I think CDS it was on, yeah. to uh, CW. The, 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 the CW, which produces all these shows together in the block. Yeah. I imagine we're going to have some. We've already had a crossover Supergirl Flash yes. last season. Although I don't but, like the guy who's playing Superman and Supergirl. Uh, I think that's mistaken casting. You, 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 frankly, they should have never, ever shown, shown us yes. Superman and yeah. Supergirl. We they don't need have. to do that no. at all. No. Yeah, that's just, you know, yeah. yeah nope. There you go. Not good. Yeah. And then, uh, you know what? Supernatural is now in the, its 11th season. Uh, the 11th season is just ridiculous. I, it's, it's gone so far into it, heaven and hell and God and Satan. It's just, uh, it gets so far. The angels and the demons oh, and the devil. Oh, it's so crazy. quite the devil and the devil's mother. But how is it, how is it that the Night Stalker, Kolchak the Night Stalker, which couldn't even last a season with its really well-written scripts. Darren McGavin. How did that show not last a season, and then a really silly knockoff with these just these these goofy young millennial faces? Yeah. How does this last eleven seasons doing a, a half as good a job at the same stuff? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I don't understand. Best thing about that they they have a wicked uh, they have a wicked shivy. Yeah, well, anyway, this <laughs> also that. has uh, this is also Blu-ray and ultraviolet. <gasps> uh, I've got Limitless, the series season one here, uh, DVD and digital. So the original film, which was uh, what's his name, Bradley Cooper, yeah, which I saw and did not like. Uh, then the series, I didn't either. Didn't like that movie for all kinds. It's, it's about a guy who takes a pill. He allows him to use, you know, a, a big chunk of his brain so he can yeah. Sherlock Holmes things and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Which is first, that's a cheat anyway. You take the pill, yeah. you know. <laughs> give me the damn pill. I'll take the pill. Uh, but whatever, they can do that. So this is a television program that takes a different guy. Uh, and it gives him the pill, and he can go out and solving crimes and all. He's a quirky guy. Every blue moon, they bring Bradley Cooper into the show uh, to give the show a boost or to, you know, I don't know, whatever, give Bradley Cooper's career a boost or whatever it is. Anyway, I don't, I don't particularly like this show any more uh, than I like uh, the movie. The cast is good, though. you got Grant Hill and a few other people in the show that uh, are interested, and I like the lead actor. He's a fun guy. Uh, but it's just not a very good television program. Oh, dropped all the movies again. There. So, and our last title this week is the 19th season on Blu-ray of South Park, which includes a uh, commentary from Matt and Trey. And uh, you know what? This show was kind of getting into a little bit of a rut in recent years, and I think even Matt and Trey are willing to admit that, that it just sort of, you know, was they were spinning their wheels and finding just whatever was the, the, the thing of the week or the thing of the month to poke fun at. That's what they would do. Everything changed in season 19. That's a late moment for mm. a long-running series to switch it up, but they switched it up. And you know why they switched it up? Because they realized that the real-life political soap opera going on in this election year was so absurd and so far-fetched and so insane that if they wanted to keep up, they had to up their game. Yeah. They had to, they had to get back in the game and they had to up their game. So they actually do this as a complete. This is a whole. Con, it's not like a different story each episode. It's serialized. The whole season is a is a gigantic soap opera on political correctness mm. that is endeavoring to be even more absurd than what we see in the news every evening. And damn if they don't do it. Out of Trump, Trump. So they they really nineteen. I'll admit to, it's fantastic. I'll admit to everyone listening now. Uh, because I don't really feel bad about it, uh, that I I stopped South Park about 
10 years ago. Yeah, same here. Which means I watched South Park for like nine years. You yeah. Know, which, which was, uh, you know, that, I thought yeah. that was that's, that's, that's pretty Sure. And I didn't stop it for any particular reason. I didn't have any issues with it. I got a little pissy when Isaac Hayes, the late Isaac Hayes. Sure, when they, they had that dust up. Yeah, and, which yeah. was not Trey and Matt. That was Isaac. Isaac, yeah. Isaac was tripping. Dude, yeah. you can't make fun of everybody else. And then when we decide to yeah. make fun of Scientology, you get yeah. a little attitude. Yeah. And then, you know, so they, they, that, that all went down. And that, whatever, that all felt uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and, I agree. And I just decided, you know what, this has all been really fabulous. I stepped away. Every blue moon, I would go back yeah. to the movie and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. But, but you know, I don't know. I, 19 years? The Flintstones, yeah. <laughs> I could do the Flintstones for 19 years. Don't know if I could do uh, sarcastic yeah. sort of uh, well, pop it's, culture humor. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with season I'm gonna 20. Check that one. I'm going to check that one out. Season 20 uh, will be interesting. They'll be back for season 20. And uh, you know what? The fact that The Simpsons and South Park have, have had these runs is kind of amazing. Yeah. Two animated shows. So, anyway. All right, well, that is it for this week. Uh, Mark will be back next week, uh, voice intact, uh, if not his, uh, his sanity. So we will, uh, we will see you then. Tim, thank you for uh, two wonderful more weeks sitting me. in. Thank you for having me. See you next week.